This. This, 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 is, this is Diversified, diversified game, 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 game. A podcast giving entrepreneurial advice from a diverse and inclusive perspective with Kelly. He may agree, he may oppose, and it's more than just race, it's about, you know, ideas. And AL. Focus more on execution and application and less on excuses. So let the game begin. Hey, it's Kellen, and today on Diversified Game, you guys are going to learn something guaranteed. I have my friend Zebulon, yes, the 10th son of Jacob, I believe. He is here. He is here to, um, I've asked him to come on because he is like, he's one of those guys where you can mention something and he is going to maybe have an answer and if he does he's going to share it with you which is even more invaluable and he has helped me with his venture that i'll talk about later on but jacob welcome to the show oh thank you yes son of jacob son of yes the the (laughs) son of the son of the son i believe the 10th son if i'm correct that's right one of the original 12 tribes of canaan before it was israel this is going to be an example of one of those things that i jump in with so here's an interesting fact about jacob relating to our current world is that every crown of England has been crowned on a chair since the 1500 that's built around the stone of Jacob, the stone that Jacob laid his head on and uh, had a dream or talking. You can tell I know a lot about it, but. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, and that's the thing, like growing up, you know, they try to tell you to master like one thing, but if you're multifaceted, which I think most people are, especially in the school system, they try to, you know, mold you into something. And I never wanted to be in that mold. And I feel like you, I mean, you've been a stockbroker, you, you know, you do your business now that is even multifaceted in construction. I mean, I, did they, did you grow up like that where people are like, Hey, you don't have to, you know, taste and see everything. Or did you have, you know, was it different for you? Uh, yeah, I think, uh, my, I didn't really grow up with my dad. He was a long haul truck driver. Um, but my mom encouraged us to like, she didn't go to church, but she took us to church so that we could know what it was about. Said that if we liked it, we, she would, you know, hook it up where we could go. Um, she encouraged us to try different things. She never stood in her way, I guess, to try anything. So I had my own business in high school. I had my own apartment, you know, so definitely, uh, didn't have anything standing in my way. I don't think besides, uh, finances, you know, when I was a kid. (laughs) Wow. So she was like really encouraging and to get your own apartment. Was it a situation where like, get out of here. You're like, Hey, actually, I think I've outgrown this and I have my own money and I found an apartment. Yeah. My, so my business in high school was, uh, document management so I basically it was kind of when the internet was first getting jumping and I figured out a way in like 1998 to uh, take documents and run them through a document feeder and have the have it all automatically scan and convert to HTML and have it all convert to HTML you know yeah. internet language so that it's searchable So I could take a picture of a page or, you know, stacks of documents from a lawyer's office, or in this case was the commissioner's office in Tillamook. 
and run them through this document feeder and have it automatically turn it into a language that you could search so that, you know, for example, in this case, the commissioner's office would often in a meeting have to reference back to an old meeting from like four or five years ago. And the only thing they knew was, oh, it was about this, but all their files are ordered by date, not by what they talked about. <laughs> so it was this crazy bad situation. So I came in there as a senior in high school and, you know, gave them a contract and they accepted it. So yeah, I moved to an apartment that was like a block from the courthouse in Tillamook. It was a friendly thing. Now, now that the, um, the thing for you to scan, did you own your own equipment or were you using someone else's? Yep. Still there. Yeah. Okay. No, I said, um, when you were um, scanning these documents, did you go out and buy your own equipment or did you, you know, have access to someone else's? Like, how did that no, even get started? <clears throat> well, all you needed was a computer and a computer program and a document feeder scanner. That stuff isn't that expensive, but yeah, I had, I bought my own equipment with my first contract. I negotiated that they would basically pay for my equipment and living expenses <laughs> for however long I thought it was going to take. Okay. Okay. And I, I can hear someone out there saying, well, why didn't he just use genius scan and do, or, you know, why didn't they, these things weren't as smart as they are now? No, I, I basically invented a genius scan before that was a thing. And that is something like when you tell those stories, I, I have only a few and I'm like, you make it work. Like you make it work. You can, you, you, I remember turning computers into servers yeah. and, you know, and it was because, well, servers were either not where they were or they were just way too expensive out of our, our league, but it was always, you know, someone giving a spark and running with it. And that's what I hope with um, all of diversified game we do. So you, you did that business, you move out, how how long did that business go for and um and what made you stop uh i mean i did that business through the last part of high school mm -hmm. and i basically stopped because i went to college i went to ripon college which is the founding city of the republican party not why i went it just fun tidbit al Jarreau also went there who's like <laughs> you know who al Jarreau is yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love Al Jarreau, by the way. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I dig it. I, I dig it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I went to college there, and uh, I tried to do so a similar thing while in college. Um, I thought, okay, I'll apply this to the student library. I'll scan in all the, you know, proprietary documentation or – you know, I actually had a chance in class to use it because they did this weird practice where they would say, oh, go to the library and there's two of these books there, but we need all 50 of you to check it out within the next 24 hours and do a thing. So it's like this, it was really just a stupid thing. So in the class, I just make up an excuse to leave, go check out the book, scan it all in because I still have my equipment and be like, okay, now everybody can just go to this website. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sure there's an app similar to that today, but back then we didn't have that. So 
<laughs> I, I, lo- I love it. I, I love it. And through this whole process of even moving out and doing your business, mom is always supportive. It, there's no, because I think that stops a lot of kids from like, you know, pursuing what could be whatever the next great thing is, is you don't have support. You don't have anyone who will, you know, some people say, oh, you could never do that. And you know, as soon as someone tells you that, that's when you have to do it because yeah. you have to show them. But a lot of folks just don't have that courage or that insight. I see a lot, you know, so that's a, a, a great thing that you had that support. And then you go to college and, you know, when you told me, Hey, I, I was a stockbroker. I mean, I was like, wow. Okay. Um, that sounds like a lovely life. <laughs> <laughs> Not every, it's not everything that it sounds like. It's basically being a stockbroker is being a glorified telemarketer. You're just on the phone all day long, literally making 1000 phone calls a day. Mm. Like that was the number that you tried to reach from 6am to 8pm every single day while you're getting started. And then, uh, you know, it's, it's not a super pleasant thing. (laughs) okay i I mean you know we grew up watching you know like the original wall street and you're like gosh you gotta be that yeah yeah like you gotta do all that but i mean the life seems grandiose but there's just i mean in a conscience and and with the energy that you have around you who's trying to catch a heart attack at 35 um ready to jump out the window if something goes wrong yeah well, what I found working for, I worked for a small boutique firm in Portland. I actually, I found out you don't need a degree to be a stockbroker. You just have to pass one test called the Series 7. And it's a, you know, somewhat difficult test, I guess. But <clears throat> passing the Series 7 and the information you learn in it has zero to do with being a stockbroker. Being a stockbroker has nothing to do with picking sound investments and doing your due diligence. And there's no math involved. (laughs) Wow. This might come as a surprise to people. There is zero math. So you don't need to, you just need to be good at sales. And, you know, I heard some discouraging things while I was a stockbroker, which uh, eventually lead to me getting out of that industry, which, you know, things like the other brokers, you know, being around me, a young broker, I was like, you know, 20 at the time. They don't care what they're saying. They think they're impressing me by showing me their $60,000 paychecks and telling me about their girlfriends and the car, the new boobs they bought their wives and <laughs> stuff that just was like, okay, well, great, but you're on cocaine. And I just heard you last week ask somebody to borrow eight grand. So, you know, you're not doing that great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That that's, you know, we've had wealth investors and different people on here. And one thing they've all said, like you just said, is that just because you're in the financial game doesn't mean you're an expert, doesn't mean you have your stuff together. Um, you know, and, and, and it might seem like that on the outside, but then you get in, I mean, you've had so many different things. And I mean, let me tell the story. So Zeb, I'm talking to him about, I can talk to him about anything. We, we sit in, you know, jujitsu class. We we can talk. Yeah, that's he, how we know each other. That's how we know each other. 
And he's interesting because the things that you would never think of, like he loves to dance. And we can talk about that. Like he <laughs> will go and find the party and he'll go state to state. Like that's his thing. I think that might be a next business that he has because a lot of people are making money off just allowing people to be free, dance, have a good time. But it was the, the wood drying thing that just had me like, wow. Cause I'm talking about, I need a wood dryer. I just saw one online and he tells me about solar kilns and I need one of these for a, a broad project, which I'm going to tell Zeb once I'm ready, like, yo, I want to do this, <laughs> this and this, let me know how, because it's in a third world country that does not have it. And it's not a secret because you guys aren't going to run to the third world with wood dryers and say, hey, let me, I'm open for business. <laughs> I might, actually, I might. Well, well, and, and yeah, we, we you know, it, it, let's do it together because there is so much sometimes headache and hassle and just getting equipment in. And yeah. we have an in, at least for a couple of countries. But, um, but, you know, and he tells me about solar kilns, start looking it up. We look it up on, I'm like, whoa, thank you. This guy is a jack of all trades. I don't think you necessarily need to master a trade. I've never liked that because tr things are always evolving. But um, with that energy that you have, like with your job now, or not, not even job, your business, how did you get into that in, in construction and, you know, the design part? Because he designs. He doesn't just do construction. He's shown me the softwares and the things he's designed for <laughs> malls and different things, and he does it quick. So how, how did you get involved in that? Uh, oh, geez. Well, we skipped ahead a little bit there. I quickly okay, go back. I went to work for uh, Floor Daniel, which is a big, giant construction management her firm. They're super evil, just like Halliburton. Just nobody's <laughs> ever heard of them. They have like 50,000 employees, build nuclear power plants. Uh, and I did contract change orders for them uh, for like pr program level change orders, which means, you know, the government approves them because okay. they're for infrastructure projects. So it, it takes a, a lot less review than maybe you'd think, but it still takes quite a bit. Um. I worked for them for about three years, uh, not actually constructing anything, quit doing that for a while, and then um, went back to investing for a little bit, and then decided I wanted to do something more concrete again. So uh, me and my buddy started, I don't know, talking about building a greenhouse, basically. And so we built a greenhouse and neighbors saw it and thought it looked pretty cool. Built another one, put it on Craigslist, sold immediately. That person is now the largest distributor of palm trees in the Northwest. <laughs> my, my very first construction company, uh, customer, yeah. We basically went to my friend's uh, grandpa's shop in Bend, Oregon and spent a weekend building this prototype greenhouse, which then turned into a business that we never meant to have. So. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the way you, the way you stumble upon things is like, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll try this. We'll try that. And that's not easy to do when you have a family. I mean, if you're just. Well, at, that, at that time I did not have a family. Okay. I, I had been doing something for a while that, uh, and I had just gotten out of a bad relationship. So me and my, I was at square, square zero. 
know what I'm talking about? Okay. You're like, I got nothing to lose. What do I do now? <laughs> <laughs> you know, no kids, no responsibilities, basically just, okay, let's figure out what we're going to do now. And so we started this greenhouse thing. And uh, while I was doing that, I was working at, I, I decided to take on like a smaller responsibility sales job than stockbroker. So I worked at Nordstrom as a stylist, which was a lot of fun <laughs> and left me enough time to be able to uh, still do greenhouses on the side. And uh, eventually after about a year, we uh, signed up for a trade show, which is a pretty fun experience. You know, it's like less for less than a thousand bucks. We got to show our product to thousands and thousands of people. So if you're in any type of business, whether it's MLM marketing you know, up to, oh, I think I have an idea and you can save a thousand dollars, take it to a trade show. <laughs> That's where you'll know if you have a business or not. <laughs> those make all the difference. And I love those. I mean, I know you do too, because you genuinely like people in conversation. Oh, but yeah. I can, you can't, you cannot stress that enough. Like, People say, well, would you just show them and then what? I mean, there's a thing called purchase orders. There's a thing called, oh, you're doing it the wrong way and you could go faster. Someone will tell you going this way. So, man, that's... Well, we showed, we showed up to that show and uh, there were seven or eight other greenhouse companies at that time. We ended up selling over 30 greenhouses and nobody else sold one. So we skunked every other manufacturer at the show. Wow. Wow. That's when we knew. That's when we knew we had a business. And then we set up shop in Central Oregon. After a few years, um, <clears throat> well, we had like an accident in the shop, basically, which wouldn't have happened uh, if it had been designed beforehand. So basically, a couple of the guys were trying to do a new thing, and they didn't have uh, a design, so they kept going back and forth to the saw over and over, experimenting instead of doing math or instead of letting the computer do math, which is what I do now. I basically, so we had an accident in the shop uh, and every, everybody's okay. But uh, it inspired me to learn these 3D modeling programs so that we would always have a plan. And that's how I started doing that. And, you know, you stress math a lot. And I know you, you in, in our personal conversations, you're like, you know, people, especially and I know you, I remember when you said the Chinese, cause they know math. Um, <laughs> how do we turn that around? I struggled with math my whole academic career until I got to college. I really didn't know math. I knew money. Um, I didn't know money very well. Um, but math, I always said, what am I going to use this for? You guys can't show me how in my life this is going to be the future but it's also how the school system treats math you know half the class may get it uh all the, you know half the class may not um and now it's even more they're not and it's like oh math is for this child math is for that child no but stress like the importance of math well <clears throat> to me Math is pretty much the only actual science. You know, it's the most hardcore science and it's the most universal language. So I, I was just always interested in it. So I read books about math that were not math books. So I think that's probably the best thing you can do, um, you know, for your kids is encourage them to read like Isaac Asimov math trick books or um there's another guy that 
I used to follow, who's like the fastest calculator in the world. He's like the world's fastest calculator. I think he's in Guinness Book of World Records, but he makes like YouTube videos now. But I remember uh, this character when I was like younger. And then I would just practice, you know, the types of things that I wanted to learn. You know, so I actually, I, f I found that by reading about it, I, it turned it into more of a story and made it more interesting than just, you know, doing a bunch of math problems is not a good way to learn math. Like you said, you got to apply it to the real world. So I fortunately, again, my mom was extremely hands-on when it came to learning when I was young. Mm -hmm. And uh, later I found out it was because I was, a uh, very bored kid and I was constantly bugging her for things to do so she was like I find 20 words in the dictionary that nobody that you've never heard of and uh, write them all down write a definition for me and then write a story and use each word in the story and it needs to make sense <laughs> like stuff like that <laughs> well, okay and, and and that's good to hear because I think a lot of times you know we see kids in front of um, tablets phones and they're the, the babysitters, but I also tell people it's what is on that tablet and on that phone and, and math. If you can master math, I mean, my wife is a math genius and she'd always oh, yeah. say, you know, this, 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 you got to learn this and that. <laughs> but countries, empires were built on math. And so it, it just, in my life, I'm like, you know, it was hard, but the system is hard. And I wasn't the only one who struggled. And what, we, what they used to say, at least in the 80s and 90s, oh, you know, the Asian kids. And it's like, no, because they're forced <laughs> to do after school math. It wasn't like it just came naturally to anyone. And that's kind of like a cop out. But I went to a school most of the time. It was probably half half white, half Asian. And even the white kids, well, the Asian kids got that. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it's, it's like, hold on everybody this is public school everybody should have the basics and we shouldn't leave people behind yeah so when i went to by the time by the time i got to school i already could read and do pretty advanced math so you know i'm in first grade already being able to do long division mhm mm and, and someone's going to say a different kind of experience where I, I didn't notice it I mean, all the kids in my school, I think, were white. It was a very, very small school. Yeah, I remember there was one Hispanic kid, I think. And I don't remember anything about race back from that time or it having anything to do with schooling. Like, I remember going to school my first day, and they gave us a page with emoticons. And so this is my first day of kindergarten, about six months into the year. And they said... You know, they asked us to to basically write the first letter of whatever the emoticon is. So, you know, a happy face, you write an H for happy. Yeah. So this is how advanced we are. So she's like, I'm the new kid. So call me up to the front of the class and ask me to do it. I see a sad face. So a little frowny face with a tear. So I write the word on the chalkboard, the whole word. And the kids are just like looking at their, you know, like, uh, is that right? <laughs> and because I had written the word melancholy. <laughs> instead of sad <laughs> in kindergarten <laughs> and I got in trouble I got in trouble for doing that I 
the teacher told me that was the wrong word. Then I recited the definition, you know, which of course I knew because this is a practice my mom had me doing every day. Yeah. This is what I thought I was. I thought I was walking out of like, oh, I'm being really held back by having my mom teach me stuff and that I was going to be going to a place where it was nonstop learning. And, you know, you've been to school, so you know that's not what it is. <laughs> not, not at all. And I think someone like yourself, and my, my pops always tells me this um, because he has a, a child, uh, had, a, had more children later in life, and they go to like one of those um, schools that you can do what you want when you want. And he's like, I wish they would have had something like this when you were around, like that was in our area, um, in the Bay Area, because... It, this would have, I mean, who knows where you would have been. And I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting because school will try to, mel- you can't write melancholy, you have to write sad. But you being advanced, I, I remember my, my wife telling me in, in, in Cameroon, West Africa, they were doing calculus by like middle school. And so when she was like, you guys, it's like calculus is a new thing to most of the people in college. Like unless you, you know, Bay Area, very privileged area. Um, I went to one of the one of the best high schools in 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 the, in the our area of the Bay, and it was like calculus wasn't something everybody was running to unless you <laughs> fit this mold. <laughs> and I was a jock, and and I played sports, and I had a job, and I can tell you, calculus, you know, struggling since whenever. If it's not money, it just I can tell you money real quick. But um, yeah, all there's the no other stuff. There's no incentive to be interested in it, basically. In fact, there's a lot of disincentives in our society to, one, not know math, and to, two, not be interested in it. You know, one of the one of the obvious things, like you just said, you know, I was a jock. So what you're saying there in relation to math is people are expecting me to be interested in a certain thing and not in other things. And if I am, then I receive some kind of social penalty. Mm-hmm. It's basically what you're saying with that type of a situation. Now, as an adult, you realize when you look back on it, oh, nobody actually cares. I could have been good at calculus and <laughs> would it have affected my jockiness, you know, or my social standing. I mean, I kind of realized that in high school, so I didn't really, I didn't put myself in any particular group. I would, I think I got along with pretty much everybody. I did some sports and some you know, theater and music and just whatever I wanted, basically. I just felt like school, you know, our parents are paying taxes for school to be there for us to take advantage of. So I did. I took every single free program I possibly could. You know, yeah. Well, did and, every activity I could. And I didn't, I didn't, you know, I never hung out with the football players that I played with. There might have been one maybe two that I actually liked. I had my own group, but I would really talk with anybody who I felt, especially, you know, when you have your girlfriends back in the day, that's who I really want to be around. I want to be around the the women. And at the time mine was from uh, Spain and, you know, I thought I was Puff Daddy. I had j <laughs> right? I, I, had, I, had, I had the Rolex because she had a place also, her dad, in New York. And I was really that guy. And I had, you know, I had my own car. But she had a car before I could even drive because I was 14 when I met her type oh, thing because I'm kind of a creature of habit. But I don't, <laughs> you know, as I told you, I like to eat off my own plate. That means on a, a lot of things. People are like, what? But... 
you know, the I wish I could have got the math. I'm like, maybe I could have been like Elon Musk if I would have known how, you know, we could have done this, this, and this. <laughs> but well, I, I use a lot in my personal life too, just, you know, in approaching questions about the world. Mm-hmm. Like I was teaching a class one time to all these like young troubled students, let's call them. Um, and they were basically like in a kid jail, but it was like set up like a school where they were like, you know, had to ride and take care of horses and do things kind of like a step before going to juvenile hall, basically. And I was teaching these girls about gardening and uh, one of them raised their hand, very concerned, wanting to, because they'd heard we're going to run out of water. So, you know, how are we going to garden if we run out of water? So I was like, okay, well, that's an interesting question. I don't think that's possible to run out of water since it's fungible, which is an important, this is why grammar is important. (laughs) It's kind of like the math of language is like knowing what words mean. So fungible means that, you know, 1000 years ago, you know, some hunter could have pissed out water that you're drinking today it's like every single drink of water you're drinking has been peed out so just accept that okay <laughs> something there's a purification process called the weather that i think keeps us all in water for, into perpetuity but i'll look into it so i did look into it and i found out that the average rainfall per person on planet earth is about 25,000 gallons per person per day the average American uses 100 gallons. So to answer her question, I was like, we use, I drew a graph and drew like what 100 looks like next to 25,000, you know, and it's like a tiny little dash next to a giant skyscraper. Yeah. So, you know, even if there were hundreds of times more people than there are still wouldn't run out of water. Yeah, run, run, running out of water in, in America. You're kind of a off the grid. I mean, you know, you, I, 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 you, off the grid. Yeah. You know, recite. I could see you having the recycled water, like um, Cameroon and many African countries have that. And I'm like, we don't. I do that. for I do for gray water. Do you? Yeah, for my garden stuff. Like I water with gray water. Okay. Okay. You, I, yeah, for sure. Could you ever see that coming in style? Like, I want to be off the grid wherever I go. I don't want to have to pay the government for electricity. I don't want to have to pay for for water. Could you see in the future, like, more and more people having it, like you see in the second and third world, where you're collecting your water and it's filtered out, and then we don't have to wait for that water bill or that electricity bill? I know it sounds like a minor thing to some people, but I just don't like having to wait for the government or be billed for things that are just God given. (laughs) Right. So how do I put this? Yeah, we're going to get there, but it's going to be like pseudo off grid living where it'll still all be centralized technology. So like, you know, power walls made by Tesla, Mm -hmm. for example, in every single house, and there will be there will be some kind of subscription service attached to it believe me they there it would be a very disruptive technology to come in and all of a sudden cut off all these corporations spigot of um bill money basically 
Mm-hmm. So they're not going to set up systems. And, and this is the real tragedy of government is they pose as, you know, how can we put it as best as very learned individuals in society who are hyper-focused on morally rectifying um, the organization of our society. Mm-hmm. So they're like the utmost, you know, moral people are moral betters, really. <laughs> if you were to believe TV. And then, um, you know, they're supposedly conferring with scientists and environmentalists and, you know, business tycoons to come up with solutions for how our society is organized. And it seems like the solutions they're coming up with always have this flavor to it. We pay more money and then we tell you that you're getting something, even though you can't really see it or sense it. Like (laughs) you're in the income bracket, I'm sure, where when they tell you they're doing something, what that results in is you paying more money. (laughs) You don't ever see a positive benefit the other way. (laughs) You know, unless you're a contractor or something who benefits from that government program. I I see that all the time, too, having. But I I, I ask the government, you know, we do government contracting here and there more. uh, It gets more. The more I, you know, grow in one way, I'm like, I don't corporate America, uh, you know, whatever. I don't even want to fit in government. I don't want to fit in. But. It's like I'd pay more money if I could see more homes being built. We see we're here in the you know Seattle area, and you see more tents being built. I'd pay more money if there were more homes. More there, they say there's jobs, but to have a job, you actually have to have someone too who you know you can call and they can show up. And people say, well, those people are mental health cases. Not all of them. I know the people that people see get arrested and in in jails and whatnot. But when you go talk with the people, you'll find that a lot of them are just like regular people where one situation had them just totally wiped out. And there is a mental health part if you're homeless or you lose your job because maybe you said the wrong thing on Wednesday that you should have said on Thursday. And so I'm like, I'd pay more if I saw more coming out, but you don't. So I'd rather take my whatever money, two pennies that I have and give it to a situation to make it better because one situation can turn. I mean, one business deal, you know this in business, one business deal can have you like, whoa, I'm, I'm back. <laughs> yeah, ne- yeah, network effects. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, you know, I personally have met hardly a a homeless person that wasn't a drug addict, which I would call a mental health situation, personally. Mm -hmm. In our society, it's a criminal situation. I think that's a a big part of the problem is they're basically perpetuating homelessness because they're not treating it as a mental health issue. Instead Instead, they're treating it as a way to make money. The fact of the matter is these private jails and you know how government works. If you don't use the money, you lose the money. (laughs) So it works the same way with the correction system. If you have a jail with, you know, 1000 person capacity and you're at 500, guess what happens to your money? (laughs) Half your money goes away. And, you know, it really only relates to the decision makers, but it's incentivized for the decision makers in those situations personally profit 
from not losing that budget or they personally retain some sense of power or, you know, I don't know what it is in every situation because sometimes I deal with the government and you would think you're taking the money out of that person's pocket. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like when you're at the DMV or something, you're like, lady, you just get a paycheck. Like none of this matters. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. The super worker, the the super worker. But, and I could hear somebody, I could hear somebody reply to this and, you know, whatever they feel about homeless, but they, there's no compassion, but I've even seen it working in the oil field um, many moons ago where you have people making, you know, six figures are very close to it um, in the oil booms and you have families living in, you know, tents as well and, and having the basic bare bones while you got billions and billions of money. And I'm like, the city shouldn't even allow this. The state shouldn't even allow this. Put some container homes around this thing so people can at least, if a tornado comes through here, at least have a chance of surviving. Because when you go and work in like a tornado alley and you're, you're like, what happens to the people who are living out of their, you know, car, their tent, their whatever, just trying to make it. And there's, you know, and people say, well, you, you, you're trying to say, you know, Nirvana. No, this is the greatest country, supposedly. So we can have solutions because I guarantee you if there was a FEMA situation, FEMA would come through there. <laughs> Talk about needing more money. Yeah. <laughs> and I've seen it in Louisiana during Katrina because we, we lived there in Louisiana at the time. And it's like, oh, now you guys have money. Where was the money before where all these poor people were struggling? So Yeah, to prevent it. Yeah. <clears throat> the like I said, it's a tragedy because they pose as the problem solvers, but they're not actually solving the problems. They're creating revenue streams. Like I see that going on and that's working really well for them, but I don't see, you know, let me put it this way. Is there less homeless people now than five years ago? (laughs) No. When they start, when they implemented all these programs to help with the problem, hell no, they're making it worse. So to me, it's like, I go with my major philosophy is the proof is in the pudding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like when somebody, you know, if there's not scientific papers written about it, I'm like, well, you can just look and see how it's doing. You know, you can tell how your diet's working by looking down at your belly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That program's working. Yeah. So, you know, we have, there's more homeless people than ever because they're continuing to treat it like a criminal thing. And until that, fundamental thing changes it's you know it's going to just keep getting worse the problem is that it is a revenue stream the never ending revolving door of of homeless to under homed people uh who are addicted to drugs of all different kinds um whether that's their fault or not i i have to tell you i have been in jail and i have heard these uh stories from drug addicts and you know half of them got on it because they got injured and mm-hmm. were given the drugs legally and then got addicted to it that's a real thing so i'm sitting here looking at okay here's 400 people in this little private jail 200 of them <laughs> you know are an extremely clear cut case of you weren't prepared to take an addictive substance for a long time then you did and you got addicted to it and you clearly need a psychologist not prison guards like 
it yeah. makes no sense. It really makes no sense. And these private prisons, you know, they'll pose as, again, that they're trying to reform people. But when you're in there, they're telling these people to just, uh, oh, you, you're not capable of making any decisions. So you got to give it all up to God. <laughs> um, so I'm multiplying this by the whole entire country, by every news report I see of, you know, people dying from fentanyl and all this. And I'm like, oh, these are people that, that gave it up to God and then realized, oh, no, God's not there making the decision for me at the time. Like, yeah. God's not there standing next to me when my buddy calls me like, oh, yeah, come on over. I heard you're out of jail. Yeah, come on over. All the old gangs here. God's not sitting there being like, no, hang up the phone and go do this instead. <laughs> so they're, they're teaching these people to be kids forever. They're teaching them childish modes of being instead of being like, no, dude, you're going to have to, you're going to have to make that decision. And then, yeah, later, maybe down the line, you're going to have, you know, you're going to face God, I guess, if that's what you believe and, you know, have to tell him why you made these decisions. I don't know. But at the time of the decision, <clears throat> the person is going to have to make it and they're not preparing. They're not preparing the people coming into the, to these jails for life afterward. All they're doing is putting them into a crucible <clears throat> where they go in, you know, a regular drug addict, and they come out a way worse drug addict. Yeah. Every single person in jail had drugs. They would come back, like I was in kind of a work release situation. Literally every single person would come back with some kind of illegal thing. <laughs> like whether it be chocolate or drugs or something. I mean, the amount of security in prisons and jails is... Eh. <laughs> And we always say government run things run just like government run things, but even private because the government puts so many stipulations. I've I've worked in um, with 13 year olds to 18 year olds in various situations who some been on heroin and we've been able to, you know, it's always a team effort, but to get people to kick their habit, you need to give them something positive. It, It could be a job. It could be a house. It could be just an opportunity. It has to be an alternative habit. Yeah. An alternative habit. And they're not going to get that by going into jail and conversing with other drug addicts all day long who are in the exact same situation. That's just, <clears throat> they need to be around <clears throat> the opposite kind of people. You yeah. know, basically, hey, there's other things to do in life besides whatever this, it, you know, there's there's more to it beyond that. Like, Half of the people in there also got, uh, you know, the shit beat out of them as kids or were uh, sexually abused as kids or. Mm -hmm. That's the part you never can. um, You never can when doing talking with the government. Let's do more in the mental health, because if we can stop some of the mental stuff, things will turn around and, but you know, that, that, and that's that's why it's not going to change. That's why it's not going to change because for some people it's a revenue stream. Mm -hmm. So until those people are identified and called out or probably, you know, if I was made, if I was personally profiting from sending people with no power to a place where they can be forgotten about, I'm probably, you know, not going to be trying to change that anytime soon. Yeah. 
so the situation is basically this, and this is why this is when I went to jail. This is what happened. <clears throat> I look up the judge running the case. <clears throat> I find out that he owns <clears throat> basically a piece of a holding company that builds private prisons. The prison's payout is determined by occupancy. That means that he personally profits more by sending people to the jails that he helped finance to build. And that should be illegal. It is illegal. It is totally 100% illegal. But who's going to do anything about it? That's asking basically the criminal justice system to investigate itself. Yeah. No police, no beat police officer is going around gathering intel and being like, oh, you know, I heard this judge is doing something illegal. I'm going to look right into that. That's not <laughs> happening. Fuck. Well, they're all part of the same. It's all part of the same group. And, you know, I, I could be accused of being in uh, elitist groups, but I read Donald Trump's book at like 12 and said, oh, OK, you go join these clubs and doors can open, No, yep. you know no matter what and it's the same thing there <clears throat> and i'm not trying to say it's like wholly untoward like you know of course it makes sense that somebody in the criminal justice system who's you know from their perspective from the perspective of a judge they're probably saying oh there's more criminals than ever of mm. course i'm going to invest in this yeah you know that's their mindset they're not thinking of they're not thinking of it from my point of view of like oh we're just creating criminals out of thin air that are really just um, like we're taking people. <laughs> I, have, I have a buddy who's a psychologist that told me <clears throat> he basically only works with um, extremely drug addicted women. And he told me 100% of them have been raped as kids. Mm, yeah. 100%. I, be I believe it. And they're being treated like criminals. And I mean, he's told me more than that, basically, like, you know, they continue to be abused in the criminal justice system. And that from his perspective, um, the type of people that gravitate towards those jobs lean, have a tendency to lean towards that, like they tend to be the type of people that will per continue to perpetuate abuse. They're not counselors. <laughs> you know i've seen males are not counselors they I've, are i've seen people who work in um i worked at the uh my first job uh louisiana methodist home and it's a big compound facility some kids come in after doing a drive-by to get leniency when they do go to court those are the rich kids some just don't have homes they've been dropped off you know it used to be an orphanage and i have seen um you know, it was one particular person. He actually took a kid home. And I'm like, this kid was like not a weakling kid. This was like the king of the whatever, the gang in the thing, right? And he yeah. took a kid home. And, you know, he's, and the kid was like, you know, we, we rode four wheelers. But the ki the guy, I'm like, who knows what he did when he took him home? You know, he was kind of, you know, a little off. Uh, I, and I think <laughs> everyone's a little off. But I'm like... Who knows what taking him home on the four wheelers, what type of, you know, fantasy land that he had and that this kid was vulnerable and was like, hey, at least I'm not in that group home situation. 
And, yeah. you know, so that's, that's crazy. I want to do this because we can do this all day. And I mean, people, oh, yeah. we could talk all day, but, and I can have Zeb back on. I think he should have his own podcast that he does daily to give the game. And I'm going to send him the link. If I haven't already, I'm going to send it again. Cause I want him to do that. Cause it's a podcast I would listen to. Um, but I want you to um, tell us like, what is your community give back that you're doing or that you want to do in the future? Okay, well, <clears throat> basically the community give back we're doing right now <clears throat> uh, revolves around two things. One is this organization called Green Bee, <clears throat> which is a Facebook-based gifting group. You can only give things away or request things. So uh, the, the work that I do is uh, construction, like Kellen said. And I do commercial tenant improvements. I work with a designer who's basically connected to all the malls in the Seattle area. And when a store shuts down, they call him up to clear it out. So we end up giving away just, I mean, there's a dress barn shut down in a mall in this area. And they left behind, you know, dozens and dozens of mannequins and tables and fixtures and their pos systems and like thousands of hangers and so that's the type of thing we'll like load it all up in the trailer and then give it away on green bee we're doing stuff like that all the time and then we we're lucky in that we have a place very close to the city limits in bothell with five acres so we have a three acre field and then we basically offer that to people on green bee if you know you live in an apartment but you want a garden, we have like, you know, all kinds of cedar and we have polycarbonate from, from my regular greenhouse manufacturing business. We also have greenhouses. <laughs> so you can like come basically and use a piece of the field for your garden if you don't have a garden space. So in the future, I, I would like to expand that, um, you know, in every way possible, basically. <laughs> It's coming and it's needed, especially in this area that's about to change with this train station. You guys have got the game. Again, <laughs> let me know. Um, I'm going to uh, get Zeb's information that he'll want to share with you. It'll all be in the description box because this is, um, I mean, the guy is a consultant of the consultants of the consultants. And, and we're going we're gonna to talk. I hate to cut it short for y'all, but... Daddy, Daddy Dolphin, that's who this is right here for those who are watching on YouTube. He has to wake up kids and get them ready for school. So <laughs> Zeb, we're going to talk, brother. Thank you. Thank you, Kellen. Thanks for getting in the game and listening to the Diversified Game Podcast with Kellen, Tyson, and A.L. The number one show pairing entrepreneurship with diverse and inclusive perspectives like wine and cheese, bagel and locks, fish and grits. Be sure to visit diversifygame.com for all the good stuff. Join in the conversation and discover more content.